verses 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Ophia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal for you, my son, a nemesis, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now has become useless, youthful both to you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He, was, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a man in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit for you, from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and my, fe my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Margaret, thank you for reading that. I know it's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but we got a chance to read a whole book of the Bible today. Don't you feel a little accomplished now? And uh, I also appreciate Margaret tackling some of those names. She came up and asked on a couple of them, and I, I got to admit, when I was a youth director, if I came across a name that was too Greek for me, I would just say Andrew or Bob. But you did a great job, and thank you for reading the scripture. Would you pray with me? Father, as... You've given me words and ideas to share with your people from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit might intercede and speak through me to your people. May the words of my mouth be useful to you and them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
This is honestly one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's one of those letters that may get undervalued or overlooked for a variety of reasons. One, it's tiny. You turn a page and it's gone. Also, over its history, that's had quite a bit of a unique reception. I was sharing with someone earlier this morning that in the fourth century, there were people that were saying, why is it even in the sacred writings? Because the implications of it undermine the empire. And while overtly it's not an, a revolutionary text, the ideas within it in the context of first century Rome shatter the culture, shatter the empire, turn everything upside down and on its head. And so you can see why some people who were institutionalists might have been a little wary of its message. Later on, in the, in the United States, I read about a white pastor speaking at a black church during the time of our chattel slavery. And the pastor was perplexed in his letter. He didn't understand why half the congregation walked out on him and the other half was angry with him and never wanted to hear from him again when he preached Philemon and taught how God wants runaway slaves to come back. Ooh. You see, when we read this text in our context, in our time, we can pick up on some very beautiful images, some beautiful practices, some, uh, the, the wonderful realized way that the gospel manifests itself in real life relationships. And we can be just filled with its beauty. But you can see at other times, it can be used as a weapon. It can be used as a tool. And so... Recognizing that texts have context, we're going to take a little bit of time to unpack it. And just another little uh, uh, caveat, we're going to be looking at this letter for the next three weeks. And so for whoever volunteers to read the scripture next week, we're going to read the book again. So just be prepared and just know that maybe you might want to do a little extra rehearsal for it. But. No, it's really interesting. My pastor that I studied under back in Denton, Texas, Tom Nelson, He's the one who first triggered me to look at Philemon in a new way. Because out of his mouth he said, you can't have Romans without Philemon. You can't have Romans without Philemon. There's nothing inherently theological in this letter. There's nothing, there's no theological crisis that he was addressing. He was not addressing a whole church, although it was read to the whole church. It's a very personal letter about a personal circumstance with the people actually named. And so we don't have this as like the, Ephesus, like the letter to the church in Ephesus is a whole theological treatise. We don't have the robust theological movements about the supremacy of the Lord and the humility of Christ that we find in Colossians or Philippians. No, we have a very real and practical. Maybe I like this, ver this, this letter so much because it's exactly what I am not. Succinct and practical. So when we take a look at the setting of why was this, another interesting thing about this is we, if you've ever just kind of eavesdropped on a phone call, you know that you have to start a kind of figure out what's going on by the context clues. There's not a time where it's said, okay, this is where we're at, this is the time. Or when a movie kind of gives you the backdrop of where it comes in. Have you ever watched a movie where it just drops you right into the action and you have to kind of listen and figure it out for a little bit until you kind of get what's going on. 
That's the way this letter functions as well. So you have to understand that slavery in Rome was integral to the whole life in society, that all the economy, all the structure, all the culture relied on slavery. Why? Because to the best of my research, somewhere between 80 and 90% of the population within the Roman Empire either was, had been, or connected to the slave culture. 80%, or less were citizens of Rome, and everybody else was a lower class, a lower caste. Now, some might say, well, uh, when we think of slavery here in the United States, we think of the slavery that we, uh, the, the system that we had, and it was different, for sure. At different time periods, the, the slave population was um, filled up by conquest, or it was filled, in other time periods, it was filled by debt, Often you were given about seven years to work your way out of debt, but if you weren't able to do so in seven years, you'd stick on for longer. There's another point where the laws and rules had slavery where after 30 years, you could be exempt and you could become freed. So in some sense, it it was different than what we practice here in these United States. However, Aristotle's language was used throughout the whole time where the slaves were referred to as living tools Living tools. Does that sound like an image bearer of God's glory? Living tools. The owner had full control over them. Also, the number one way that slave population was replenished in this time period was through the propagation. They were allowed to marry, but it wasn't full marriage. It was more like a civil union and not the full marriage of the citizens. But they were allowed to marry, but their offspring were not their family. They were new living tools for the master. And that's how this system went over and over and over. And if you think about 80% of the workforce, 80% of the population are born into supporting and continuing the slavery model. What happens if someone challenges that? 70, 80 years before Christ, there was a a Germanic person who, who tried to set up a rebellion to change the slave culture within Rome. You all may remember his name. His name is Michael Douglas. Oh, wait, sorry. Spartacus. Was it Michael Douglas? Who remembers the actor in Spartacus? Who has seen Spartacus? Anyone? Kurt Douglas. Oh, that, you know, that joke would have landed so much better if I'd gotten the right Douglas. I just remember as a kid seeing this movie, and I was watching it, and they're like, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, and I jumped up in my house, and I'm like, I am Spartacus. I did, I was, a, I was that kid. There was a rebellion trying to say that we deserve better, and, you know, you might know how Rome handled rebellion. Everything is fine as long as you just stay in line within Rome. You can believe in your gods, you can do your practices, you can have your civics, as long as you do not disrupt the power structures and economy and culture that Rome wants to hold. And if you do, you will be eradicated quickly and brutally. Rome had the greatest peace that the world had ever known in an empire, but it was peace with a fist. So that's the setting in which Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul are in this letter. We don't know a lot about what happened with Onesimus. Why was he on the run? Why was he sent to Paul? Some people conjecture that, but I don't think that's the case by the context clues in the, in the letter. 
Did he accidentally just come across Paul as he was on the run? Sure, that's possible in the sovereignty of God. Or did he seek Paul out as to find an advocate for himself? We don't know. But what we do know is that Onesimus was considered a slave and that Philemon was a former friend of Paul. And that Paul was somewhere in jail. We think Rome, most likely in Rome, but he could have been over in another town at that point. What do we know about Paul being in jail? Was he a common criminal? No. Why was he in jail? He submitted himself to that. He saw how to use the legal system as a conduit, as a path to gain access to whom? Caesar. Because he wanted Caesar is Lord to hear that Jesus is actually the Lord. So he made his appeal and wanted to work his way up to the ultimate judge and juror within Rome so that he might tell them the, the supremacy of Christ and maybe to alleviate that, oh, you have no fear of Jesus because he's over and above and honestly not that concerned with empires of this day. See, that was why Paul was in jail. That was Paul's mission. That was Paul's goal. I was just asked uh, before, do, do you think that Paul knew that he was... Um, undermining the empire? Do you think that was his goal, was to usurp and, and overthrow Rome? And to be honest, I don't believe Paul had that on his radar at all. I think Paul was solely consumed with the proclamation of the new life and freedom that we have in Christ. And honestly, Paul, I don't believe, thought he would see death before Jesus returned and set up his kingdom fully. So the urgency of Paul had very little to do or desire to overthrow Rome. And then there's Philemon, the friend of Paul, the Christian who, who is a leader of a house church in Colossae. But he had slaves, as the culture dictated. And his one slave took off, ran away, possibly stole something. Again, by the clues that we have in the letter, we're trying to piece it together. You see, there's three points of crisis that we have with these three characters. Paul is in prison to make his appeal to Caesar. And to be honest, if you're keeping the big goal in mind, getting in the weeds of a singular individual's trouble might be counterproductive. You see, because anybody who helps a runaway slave and gives them um, housing and support was guilty and could be punished could be charged fines, could cost them. You see, Paul's big goal of reaching Caesar could be derailed by helping Onesimus. That's one point of conflict. Onesimus, by the way, a runaway, he could face absolutely grave consequences by the content of this letter, being sent home to deal with his, his, whatever his offense was to Philemon. But on the flip side, leading a life on the run was also precarious. It's kind of go with the devil you know and not the one that's new. I don't know. But I just know that Onesimus, his life was in peril. Interestingly enough, just so you know, um, Onesimus is a pretty common slave name because it means helper. It means useful. Later on, Paul actually uses a pun. And yes, puns are biblical. So if some people are like, puns are the lowest form of humor, we'll take that up with Jesus. 
But he says, he who was formerly useless is now both useful to me and to you. Useful, was useless, but is now useful again. There's his little play on words. And Philemon, he's at risk through this whole letter. He's at risk socially. He's at risk politically. He's at risk economically. By honoring Paul's request that Paul makes of him, the only thing he gains is gospel credibility while putting every aspect of his life at a more precarious position. So what is this issue going on that we're going to look at this morning? It's the mission. The mission in Philemon was for him to forgive Onesimus. To forgive him and embrace him as a brother. That's the mission of this letter. That Philemon forgive him and embrace him as his brother. Now Paul starts off by, most of his letters, he starts off by telling you what, how he thanks God for you and all the good things he's heard. And he does that here again. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I do not believe that is lip service. I believe Philemon was a deeply devout man who was a a true fellow servant of Christ who was committed to the gospel and was mature in his ways. He was the leader of a house church and he was esteemed by his friend Paul. He even goes on and says in verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. I I pray that your partnership will grow your faith deeper so that you become aware even more of God's glory and grace in your life. Now, it's interesting. We're going to look at that word partnership. Um, I don't often go to the Greek because, one, my Greek was terrible but I have friends that was good, so I call on them a lot. Two, I don't think you becoming a, a, a knowledgeable about two or three Greek words is going to be all that helpful. But I remember growing up with this word because at my church that I grew up in, there were what we call growth groups. Some people call small groups. At my Bible church that I grew up with, we called them koinonia groups. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the word koinonia before. That shows you've been raised in the church. Because it's not one of those words that's traveled over into the English language, is it? It's not one of those words we know unless you've been churched. And what do we typically think koinonia means? Fellowship. But it's actually broader and bigger and deeper than that. Fellowship, we can often mistake as just a really wonderful time together. Fellowship, coffee and cake. Fellowship, helping someone move. Fellowship, visiting someone while they're sick. Making them a a dinner while they're not well. Now we're starting to get a little bit deeper into what fellowship is. Fellowship is way more than the important time that we have having a little coffee and catching up with each other. You see, fellowship also can mean partnership, a sharing with one another, a mutual beneficial relationship. So Paul here is saying, I pray that your koinonia with us, your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding. In Christ, we know that all are equal. All are equal partners in Christ. They're partners who share together in the gifts of God's love and grace and mission. You can look in uh, 1 Corinthians, 
in Galatians, in Colossians, where Paul highlights to all these different churches that in Christ there is either neither free nor slave, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. All these divisions that we humanly have are wiped clean. If we look at Ephesians 2, we see clearly that the, the secret mission of God, the mystery that he withheld and now revealed to us through the Holy Spirit in the church was that Jew and Gentile are being formed into a new humanity. It's not that the Gentiles are becoming Jewish or that the Jewish are lightening up and letting in more people. No, it's that out of the two, those near and those far, God is making something new. So the walls are being torn down. And here in this letter, we have a very practical, visible realization, manifestation of what the gospel looks like in real, physical life. That koinonia, that partnership. Paul and Philemon have been and are partners in grace. They are partners in the gospel life and in the kingdom. You see, koinonia has to be more than an idea. It cannot be something we merely think about or just slap on the name of a growth group. Koinonia is what we do. Koinonia is how we live together, how we act, how we live, how we do mission together. Which brings us to the point where, where Paul hits Philemon for the ask. He builds them up a little bit, says, praise be to you. I love seeing what God's been doing. I'm thankful for your partnership. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, here it comes. Although in Christ I could be bold in order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless, but now he's become useful to both you and me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would like to have kept him, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was even separated you from a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, even dear to you, both as a fellow man, as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, verse 17, if you consider me koinonia, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. There's the ask. Welcome him as you would welcome me as a brother in Christ, as one who you were excited to see, as one who you prepared a room for, as one you would include at the family meals, in the house church worship services, as a member of God's eternal family, co-equal with your own children. You can see this is quite an ask, isn't it? Imagine if you had an employee, we'll put it in employee terms for the, today, you own a business and you have an employee who probably took some stuff, maybe embezzled some funds, and then took off for a while. I don't know if around here you can even conceptualize what it would look like for a fugitive to be on the run. 
But you can imagine that you might have a little angst. Just the hearing of his name might make you say, Ugh, Onesimus. I don't know what the Greek word for useless would be, but maybe you would just start calling him useless instead of useful. Because that dirty, you know what, he just can't believe he took off all that we did for him. And then you get a letter. Found him. He's with me. Thank goodness. Bring him. Oh, what? I know that you'll be good to do what's loving in the Lord. I could command you to do it, but I'm going to ask you to do it out of love. He who was useless is now useful. He who was far and distant is now near. He who was separate is now included. He who was slave and a living tool is now a brother and part of the family. So receive him as you would receive me. Before we delve into the weight and request and its implications, let us look at the method that Paul asked with. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on what? The basis of love. Gospel love. Remember, koinonia isn't just an idea, it's what we do. And we all know from the great theologian's DC talk of the 90s, love is a verb. Love is not merely a, a, an idea to be, feel warm fuzzies. It's not really a, a, a romantic rush. That which makes us swoon or feel warm and fuzzy. That time when you hold a brand new little baby or grandbaby and you feel those just feelings of love. Love goes so much deeper than that and it goes to the actions of our sacrifices and our carings and our preparations for others. It, love goes to that inclusion of others. We had a cookout with some friends the other day, and I knew that they loved us because they cleaned even their garage, because they knew that we'd be walking through their garage. Now, I don't know if it's because of love for us or just wanting to protect their reputation, but either way, they put a lot of effort into their preparations for us, which made me feel what? Loved. So here he's asking, I could order you, Paul could pull the hierarchy card. Why didn't he just pull rank? Why didn't he just order forgiveness and acceptance and the assimilation of Onesimus into the church family? Why didn't he say, Jesus' kingdom trumps Rome's? Jesus' ways trump Rome's, and so you better do this. If you're going to be included in the church, you better do it this way, and here's the order. Why did, not, why did Paul not do that? Well, for starters, I mean, there's probably a dozen reasons we could come up with, but the one that first comes to my mind is forced forgiveness is not forgiveness. It's obedience. It says right here in the text, I did not want to do anything without your consent. Consent, your agreeing and approval and taking on the course of action voluntarily. I didn't want you to do without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. What if Philemon would have forgiven out of the gospel? What if Paul chose the way of hierarchy and said, you got to do this, and Philemon says, oh, I would have. All you had to do was ask. Clearly I would have. But now that's obscured. Now that's missed. Now, Paul, now Philemon didn't even get the chance to show that he was willing to show love and mercy. He now just shows obedience. 
Hierarchy is not partnership. Hierarchy is not koinonia. Koinonia requires a sense of equality. It's an egalitarian uh, affect. So to instill a level of hierarchy in order breaks the partnership and creates hierarchical structure. See, partnership requires volition. Volition requires freedom. The odd thing in Christ's new life and new kingdom and new community, while we are implored to live a life of holiness, a life of wonder and beauty and majesty at God's grace and mercy to us, we are for some reason allowed to grieve the Holy Spirit. We are allowed and we have the freedom to embrace that which Christ died for and yet still come in on Sunday and profess Jesus' name. What do we call that, by the way? For some of us, it gets us really angry that God puts up with us. For other of us, we recognize, oh, that's what mercy is. That God does not hold us to account for all the wrongs that we do, and that he blesses us even in spite of it. That is grace and mercy. And hierarchy requires the freedom. And so then what we are drawn into is that if Paul were to flex his authority and his rank, that would not be cruciform. That would not be in the way of Jesus Christ. That would not be in the way of the cross. Flexing of power is not a realization of Jesus' new kingdom way. Let me say that again. Accumulation and flexing of power is not the Jesus kingdom way. It never was and it never will be. Even if that accumulation and flexing of power is towards seemingly moral and good ends. Jesus did not accumulate and flex power to defeat our greatest nemesis death, did he? Did he face death head on and say, I'm going to beat you into the ground, death? No. He offered himself up to death and went through death and came out victorious on the other side. And that, friends, is the gospel. That, friends, is our hope. Therefore, it has to be our methodology too. Oh, it's so tempting, especially in our current day and age. You see, 2,000 years ago, no Christian could ever conceptualize the infrastructure that we have as a church. National offices, right? I mean, you had some house churches scattered in some cities. By 100 years in, you might have had a couple bishops. What's a bishop? It's a head pastor for a region. Cool. And he has what authority? Inside the church, a little. Outside the church, nothing. Nothing. But sometimes we can start thinking, boy, we really need to do more for Jesus. So let's accumulate the power so that we can pull the levers of, of, the, of the worldly system so that we can make Jesus' name high and, and upheld. And we can make everybody who does not follow Jesus start obeying Jesus, whether they know him or not. And I think when people ask, why did Paul not... Just come out and say the words, no slaves should be slaves anymore. 
Why did Paul not say emancipation? Why did he not say down with the slavery system? Because it's not in line with Christ. Because it is not in line with Christ. But Paul's goal was not merely the bringing down of Rome. It was the exaltation of Christ and his kingdom, which really does not care about Rome. It's so supreme and so eternal. And Rome had, a, had a, a, an expiration date on it. And friends, just to be clear, we live in a country that has acted like an empire for a couple hundred years. And let us be clear, it's a wonderful place to live. It's a great place to be a part of and to be from. Not perfect. We never claimed it was. But there's an expiration date on the empire because there always is on a human empire. You see, Christ has called us out of the empire into the community, into the body, into the partnerships, into the koinonia of Christ followers. And he's called us to live a different way. Therefore, we need to take on the law of love. That is our action. That is our, our process. That is our, our mantra. That is our code. There is no other code. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Forgive me for reading a longer passage of scripture, but if then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any koinonia, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, Lowness of self, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave assuming human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a human, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul is calling us to be in the way of the cross, the mindset of the cross, the methodology of the cross. And I guarantee you, nobody is wearing cross as jewelry at the time these were written. We have not washed the cross of its hideousness and pain and objective value of torture and repression and social control. And yet Paul is saying, our way has to go through the cross. Paul appealed to Philemon out of love, out of the cross, not out of rank and hierarchy. So our takeaway, koinonia, partnership, is the goal of our Christian community. That's what we are with each other. Sometimes I ask people to look around, and just so you know, we're such Westerners, we don't. Two people look around usually, and they look around, but everybody else, I say, oh, look around and take a look at your neighbor, and everybody goes, 
But friends, we are partnered together. And we're partnered together with that church on the north side of the town, that church on the east side of town, and the church on the west side of town. But our true, most clear partnership is with each other because this is where we have been placed and called by God. Or let me put it in other circumstances. This is the church you chose to come to. I've done a good research in phase one of our transitional process. Did you know that we have a lot of wonderful things about our church? You did because you told me all about them and they ring true. Did you know that we're not a perfect church? Yep, every one of you knew that we were not a perfect church and that was okay. Did you know that we have some opportunities to grow and to do good things in the name of Jesus? Absolutely. So I'm just going to reinforce something really quick. As we move forward and try to develop our vision for who we are today in Kennett Square, today in 2023, looking to 2024, let us not be caught up in doing things to, to benefit us. Let us not be caught up in trying to do what program do we need to grow or to fill in the young people. No, let's just do things that God leads us to do that bless and build his kingdom no matter what benefit it brings us. And I can guarantee you that is the life he's called us to, to live. And we are the partner together. We are the koinonia of Kennett Square Presbyterian Church. We are the partners called to serve in the way that he's called us to serve. And it is different. It is unique. It is fresh. It is exciting because God is with us. So let us take away from this that we don't need to amass and collect power, but no, we get to be the people who appeal to love and live out a partnership with each other. Let us follow Jesus' radically in a way that changes our connected relationships horizontally. Too often we can make it that our, our faith in Christ makes us whole with God and we can face eternity with a sense of, whew, thank God I'm saved. But let's remember that that save now puts us in relationship with each other where we might have to forgive people we don't want to forgive. We might have to be put in relationship with people that kind of annoy us. We might have to be, we might have to be in relationship with people who we disagree with. And I know, we all know that. But it takes on a new life when we actually hit it, doesn't it? So we're called back again to the radical Jesus way of, of healing relationships side by side as well as with God the Father. And therefore, we must make Jesus' ways our ways. When we live out the law of love, we embrace. We embrace the difficult people. We embrace the difficult situation. We embrace the challenge to love. And with God's help and leading of his spirit, we might do hopefully a little better than our forefathers. We will hopefully not use this letter as a way to remind people to return to their masters. We, we, we hope that we will not use this letter as a way to just try to set up a new earthly kingdom in the name of Jesus rather than in the actual power of Jesus. We must be like Jesus and go through the cross, humble ourselves, and recognize that there will be a day that God will exalt his people, but that day may not be today. We might have to go low before God exalts us high. Let us be people who lean into love, not authority. Amen? Lord, we pray that you would help us as we live this life. As we look at this letter over the next few weeks, God, help us to see how powerful it is to get a glimpse into what you did in the life of three men 2,000 years ago. 
We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be faithful to the way and to the partnership with each other in the name of Jesus. Unlock what that means for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.